Hello, welcome to the presentation, Treatment of Pain in Patients with Dementia. I'm Nicole Peterson. I'm a doctorate of nursing practice. Uh, I'm a geriatric nurse practitioner and I work at the College of Nursing in the faculty practice, um, house calls practice, practice in long-term care, and uh, teach as well in the College of Nursing. And Jeff Reese is a pharmacist. He's a clinical associate professor at the University of Iowa and practices in geriatric clinic and family medicine at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Um, Jeff and I actually work together in a geriatric community-based collaborative practice. Um, neither Jeff or I have anything uh, financial relationships to disclose. The objectives at the conclusion of this program is that you'll be able to uh, appropriately assess pain in a patient with dementia, recommend appropriate pharmacotherapy for treatment of pain in a patient with dementia, and discuss the association of pain with behavioral disruptions in a patient with dementia. So first, let's start with a little background. Um, dementia affects about 35 million people worldwide. It is expected to increase to about 115 million by the year 2050. And pain in the elderly, about 72% uh, of people above over the age of 85 uh, do report pain. And there is limited uh, studies, but around 50% of people with dementia do have pain. So agitation and aggression are common symptoms uh, with patients with dementia, about 50% of people with dementia in long-term care facilities have uh, agitated behaviors, and behaviors may be related to untreated pain. Um, studies do support an association. Um, the behaviors may be seen as things like pacing, uh, restlessness, calling out, moaning, groaning, grimacing, um, rubbing, different body parts, confusion, or just a change from their usual behavior. Um, changes in activity patterns, such as um, a change in their appetite or the amount of activity that they normally do, as well as sleep changes um, or just generalized confusion. So the gold standard for pain assessment uh, is self-report uh, by patients. So what happens then with people with um, dementia? Um, studies show that people people with mild to moderate dementia can still reliably self-report pain. Um, and you should really look at comparing their responses of pain report at rest versus their pain report um, with movement or activity. Something with a simple face uh, scales is that a face scale is not meant to be used um, as a caregiver observation of the patient's pain, but really for the patient to look at and report their own pain. Um, some pointer for using um, pain scales with people with dementia is to make sure that you're promoting their sensory function first. Um, they can see well enough uh, to have the glasses on. Um, can they hear you well enough when you discuss it? Um, and give them enough time to respond to your question. And that, remember, you need to repeat the instructions with every time you use the, the pain scale. Another thing that we'll talk about more is that know, knowing that people with dementia may not be able to ask for PRN pain medication and that you really need to reassess frequently um, how, 
how their pain has changed with different activities. Um, and also, if you can use the same pain scale um, in whatever facility that you're, or area that you're in is good, as well as documenting um, the different times that you're using it and what you're seeing, um, making sure that other people can access that information. So the minimum data set, um, we're currently on version 3.0. Um, Section J covers pain management. Uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, um, this is a, a nursing home quality uh, initiative, and it's completed quarterly in all long-term care settings, so all nursing homes, whether it's um, skilled or ICF, uh, and it addresses uh, pain management, looks at if the patients are receiving a scheduled pain medicine as well as PRN medications that they may have available and what non-pharmacological interventions they are using. Uh, the pain assessment questions are um, pretty simple and they're standard. Have you had pain or hurting at any time in the last five days? And ask how much of the time have you experienced pain or hurting in the last five days with responses of um, almost constantly frequently, occasionally, rarely, and unable to answer. And over the past five days, has the pain made it hard for you to sleep at night? And over the past five days, have you limited your day-to-day -day activities because you're experiencing pain? And as well as looking at the intensity of pain um, over the last five days, either using a numeric rating scale, which is on a scale of zero to 10, zero being no pain, 10 being the worst pain you could imagine, or a verbal descriptor scale asking them to describe mild, moderate, severe, very severe, or horrible, or also the notation that the patient is unable to answer. So this is a pain scale called the um, Pain Assessment in Advanced Dementia, um, also known as the Pain Ad. It's a pretty easy to use scale. Um, it doesn't take very long to do this scale. It's a 0 to 10 uh, pain intensity scale, but that does not correlate with a 0 to 10 numerical rating scale. So 10 doesn't equal the worst pain you could imagine. This is just a, a, a different type of a, a scale. Um, and it's best used by comparing the score on the pain ad at one point in time with the score at another point in time. Um, and you're really looking at the change in their overall score on the pain ad. So either you're looking at if something you did is improving the, um, their pain or if it's making their pain worse. Um, so you look at uh, observe an older person with dementia for about three to five minutes while they're engaged in some type of activity um, or with movement, so walking or transferring, um, and just rate their pain uh, their score of 0, 1, or 2, and that's the patient's current behavior. You add the scores together and note that, um, you know, note that score and document it. Also good to consider is that their, uh, your observation should be um, taken into consideration any existing painful conditions that they may have and uh, report from uh, what the patient is able to say. And remember that um, some individuals may not demonstrate obvious pain behaviors or cues. So if you suspect pain and you're not actually seeing anything when you're doing the pain assessment, that remember if they have uh, a reason that they could be in pain to still use a treatment for the pain.
So some of the non-pharmacological treatments for pain uh, is to just make sure that basic needs are being met, um, you know, hunger, thirst. Um, do they need to use the restroom? Are they sleeping? Do they need to sleep? As well as making sure that their um, sensory impairment, if they have an sensory impairment or if they're being overstimulated, um, you know, can they see well? Can they hear well? Is it too hot, too cold, too much noise? Um, not enough noise, like they feel like they're left alone, and to utilize um, heat and cold therapy, so either a hot pack or a warm pack if it's applicable, as well as uh, some alternative therapies like um, biofreeze is one that's uh, very common. It's a menthol-based uh, cr uh, cream that you can use either on joints or muscles. Um, TENS units are also good um, non-pharmacological um, methods as well as utilizing uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, or perhaps massage therapy, depending on the patient's um, needs. Okay, we're going to shift gears here and talk about uh, pharmacological treatment of pain. Um, and for treatment of pain in, in patients with dementia, one thing that we do note um, is that we don't have a lot of evidence on what to do. Uh, we do try to practice evidence-based medicine in everything we do. Um, um, however, in this area, we're relying on several small trials. Uh, the trials that have been done um, have been a combination of uh, randomized controlled trials all the way into observational studies. Um, and they've been fairly short in duration, um, and they've been limited mostly to the nursing home population. So it is sometimes hard to extrapolate this information to people living in the community. first study we're going to look at is by Kovac et al. Um, and this was a randomized controlled trial, uh, which you remember is one of the higher standards of studies, so it is a pretty good level of evidence. Um, it took place in 14 long-term care facilities in the Midwest United States. Um, they got almost 300 consenting subjects, however, um, by the time they went through the enrollment period, um, they only ended up with 127, and of those 127, 13 did not complete the study. Uh, the study actually tested the effectiveness of an innovative uh, clinical protocol for the assessment and management of unmet needs um, in people with late-stage dementia. So it really wasn't looking only at pain, it was looking at unmet needs, but you know, as Nicole mentioned, you know, a lot of times um, some of the behaviors that we associate with dementia are actually due to the unmet need of pain relief. Um, they used um, a serial trial intervention versus standard care, and I will discuss that intervention on the next slide in greater detail. Uh, the two assessments they used, they used something called the Discomfort DAD um, as well as the Behave AD. Well, the Discomfort DAD is a nine-item visual analog scale which measures overall discomfort. Um, and this overall discomfort is rather than, is, as opposed to discomfort associated with a certain pain-inducing event. Uh, the BEHAVE AD scale um, assesses commonly occurring and potentially remediable behavioral symptoms associated with dementia um, that have been occurring over the last two weeks. Now, the intervention was called a serial trial intervention, or STI, um, and that consisted of a physical needs assessment, an effective needs assessment, um, a trial of a non-pharmacological uh, treatment, a trial of an analgesic, um, and then if necessary, consult with another discipline 
and possibly a trial of a psychotropic drug. I want to talk a little bit about the non-pharmacological and the pharmacological treatments. Uh, the non-pharmacological treatments were tailored to the person. Um, they were not routine for everyone, so they were tailored for the individual person, and they were basically uh, drawn from um, a series of non-pharmacological treatments that have been known to be helpful um, in meeting the unmet needs of patients with dementia. Uh, the trial of the analgesic, and this is one of the problems with the study, um, they didn't have a set um, analgesic or a dose of an analgesic that they studied, but they basically um, administered um, whatever PRN medication order was already on the patient's record. Remember, these were folks um, in long-term care facilities. And if they were already on an analgesic, they escalated the dose. So it really wasn't a very clean study as far as being able to look at the effect of certain analgesics um, on taking care of um, unmet need of pain um, and some of the behaviors associated with that. Um, they don't really describe the medications very well, but they do list the range, and they ranged everything from the non-opioids, such as acetaminophen, to the combinations, the acetaminophens with some of the opioids, you know, like hydrocodone, et cetera, and then some of the single entity um, opioids as well. Um, if the trial of the analgesic wasn't deemed effective um, and they required a consultation with another discipline, um, oftentimes a psychotropic drug was ordered, and those ranged from antipsychotics, antidepressants, and anxiolytics. So let's take a look at the results. So they did a pre-assessment, which is listed there in the first column. Um, and they looked at both the discomfort scale and the behavioral scale. And they broke them down into the STI group and the control group. Um, and as you can see, pre-test, um, the scores were pretty similar. Um, then they did a two-week into the study test. And then they did a four-week into the study test. Um, and as you can see, um, at the four-week level, um, there was a significant difference in the STI group versus the control group um, in the discomfort, um, however, not in the behavior. It was interesting to note that between the two groups, when they looked at the differences in the interventions, uh, the control group received non-pharmacological treatments in about 86% of the subjects, um, and pharmacological treatments in only about 3% of the subjects. Um, in the STI group, um, the non-pharmacological treatments was fairly similar to the control group at 91%. Um, however, if you look at the pharmacological treatments, it was increased to 46%, uh, which is a, um, a pretty significant difference there. The next study we want to look at is by Husbo et al. Um, and this was a, also a randomized control trial. Again, it took place in uh, long-term care facilities um, in Norway. Um, it had quite a, a large number, actually, um, 352 residents in 18 facilities. Um, and they used a stepwise um, pain treatment protocol versus usual management. They followed these folks for eight weeks, um, and then they did a 12-week post-study follow-up to see if things returned to baseline. Um, their primary outcome assessment was agitation. Um, and remember, this isn't um, exactly looking at only pain, um, but again, um, in patients with dementia, sometimes agitated behaviors um, can be um, a symptom of unmet need of pain. Um, the assessments uh, scale that they used was a Cohen-Mansfield agitation inventory. Um, and this is com was completed by nurses in the facilities 
using 29 agitated behaviors, each rated on a seven-point scale with a, a numerical score of one, the um, behavior was not present, and a numerical score of seven, which was several times per hour. They did look at some secondary outcomes of agitation, cognition, and for cognition they used the MMSE scale. Uh, they looked at ADLs, um, and they also looked at functional assessment. One thing I like about this study um, from a, a pharmacological standpoint is that they were very set on what the pharmacological interventions were. Um, they started at step one, which was acetaminophen or Tylenol, um, at up to three grams per day. Um, they limited at three grams rather than, some people would actually go up to four grams, but in this particular study, they limited it to three grams. Um, if, they, if the subject was already receiving acetaminophen, they adjusted to one of the following. They may have gone to step two, which was going to morphine, up to 20 milligrams a day, uh, which some might say is a pretty big step, um, but that was what the study did. Um, or they may have used buprenorphine transdermal patch, which um, it is available in this country as butrans, although I don't believe it's used very much. Um, it is a transdermal uh, form of buprenorphine, which is a, uh, an analgesic. Um, and that was generally used um, especially if the patients were having swallowing difficulties. Um, they could also go up to step four, which is pregabalin, um, up to 300 milligrams a day. Um, and that was primarily used for patients where they suspected there was a neuropathic pain component. Um, it was important to note that concomitant, the other drugs were allowed to be able to be continued if they were on those drugs four weeks prior to the study. And this include drugs such as psychotropics, um, and NSAIDs, uh, which certainly may have confounded the results a bit. So this table shows that most of the subjects, about 69% of them, use acetaminophen. Um, they do list it as paracetamol um, because this study was a European study and in, in Europe that is the, the name for acetaminophen, which is the United States name uh, for that drug. Uh, very few um, of the subjects use morphine, only about 2%. Um, 39% uh, used the transdermal patch, and again, um, that was uh, often recommended due to folks might having, might, uh, that might have swallowing difficulties. Um, and 12% um, of the patients used uh, the pregabalin, uh, again, primarily for uh, suspected neuropathic pain. Um, it was mentioned in the study, one of the limitations of the study was that there was um, a somewhat some, some resistance from uh, family members um, and prescribers to escalate from paracetamol or acetaminophen to the opioid morphine. So this slide uh, shows the results um, based upon the assessment, which was the Cohen-Mansfield Agitation Inventory. Um, and remember for this score, um, the smaller the number, the better. Uh, through eight weeks of treatments, uh, there was a statistically significant difference in favor of the, tr the treatment group. Um, after eight weeks, um, the analgesics were withdrawn. Uh, some of them had to be tapered, of course, if they were opioids. Um, and at 12 weeks, uh, when the, the analgesic was completely washed out, um, they gave another assessment. Um, and you'll note that basically there was not a significant difference between the two groups at that time. Uh, this study did show that the use of analgesics reduced agitations in patients with dementia. Um, however, if you look at this, um, and if you looked at um, you know, how long it took 
um, to get an effect, you notice that there was an imp a continual improvement up to eight weeks when the study was actually stopped, uh, which leads us to, um, to the conclusion, I guess you might say, that um, we really need to give these analgesics a fair trial. So giving an analgesic for a couple days um, and stopping it because it's not effective may not be um, in the best, uh, best advice. The next study we're going to look at is the Cohen-Mansfield study. This was an observational study. And remember, observational studies compared to randomized controlled trials are considered a little bit lower level of evidence. Um, they basically are looking at um, situations um, more real, real life, you know, the way things are happening, just letting things happen. Uh, this was an open label medication study. A fairly small group, uh, 36 people uh, completed the treatment. Um, they did study the response to a very systematically delivered medication regimen. Um, and the reason why I selected this study is because of that regimen. I thought it was very well designed from a pharmacological standpoint. Um, it also looked at uh, various pain assessment methods. Um, the treatment group received the pain medication and the control group did not. Uh, this was the medication protocol that was used. Um, and again, I think one of the big strengths of this study, if we're looking at looking for evidence for you know, pharmacological treatment um, of pain in, in patients with dementia, um, this is a fairly nice protocol to look at. It included five phases, and people could progress through the phases kind of in a stepway approach based on pain assessment. Um, they could start with um, acetaminophen 650 milligrams four times a day, uh, escalate up to 1,000 milligrams four times a day or four grams a day. If that was deemed ineffective, they would add a low dose of oxycodone to the acetaminophen, uh, 2.5 milligrams plus the acetaminophen four times a day. Um, if that was deemed ineffective after a, a, a appropriate trial, they could escalate to five milligrams of oxycodone plus the acetaminophen. Um, and then they could finish up with up to 10 milligrams of oxycodone plus acetaminophen, 1,000 milligrams four times a day. The patients were screened using multiple pain assessment instruments, and if pain was indicated on at least two instruments, uh, the medication protocol was initiated. Um, they reassessed every two weeks if the patient was still in moderate uh, pain um, based on the same assessments, um, the next step was instituted. Of note, um, at the end of the, of the study, uh, the majority of patients were again maintained on acetaminophen alone, which is similar to the last study that we looked at. Um, again, there was some resistance from relatives and physicians to escalate to opioids during this study. Um, and again, remember this is an open label study, it's observational, um, so there was a lot of opportunity for confounding um, and other um, interferences which you know may affect the quality of the evidence. Um, but interestingly, um, way over the majority of the patients were maintained on acetaminophen. The treatment groups reported better pain control compared to the control group, um, and ADRs were comparable um, at baseline uh, for the last phase. One final study, and we'll get into what we think um, are our best recommendations, and this was by Chibnall et al. Um, and it was a randomized control crossover trial, so um, the patients served as their own control, so they got uh, placebo or acetaminophen, and then after a period of time, they were switched over and got whatever the other treatment was. Um, they looked at the MMSE for looking at cognition. Um, they looked at um, 
the GDS as well as um, other uh, outcomes. Um, and what they found, they were looking at activity participation, social interaction, agitation, and emotional well-being. They did find that treatment with acetaminophen did enhance the activity participation uh, media and social interaction. However, in this particular study, uh, there was no effect on agitation or emotional well-being. So after all those studies, remember not all of them were really geared for only pain, um, what does this tell us? So I think what we can do is we could say, um, thinking back on the uh, stage one or, or phase one of most of the studies involved using acetaminophen. Um, so I think it is pretty safe to say that that's probably the best place to start. Uh, acetaminophen, if used within a reasonable dose of three to four grams a day or less, um, is relatively safe um, as long as we're you know, aware of other forms of acetaminophen which might be in the medication regimen. Um, so acetaminophen is probably the best, best place to start. Um, we do want to always remember um, to, to schedule the dose. We do not want to rely on PRN dosing. Remember patients with dementia may not always be able to uh, request PRN doses. So schedule doses um, at a reasonable time frame. As far as monitoring, um, as Nicole mentioned, we want to use um, the same strategy um, that we use to identify the pain, the pain to monitor for the pain. So whatever scale or assessment uh, tool that you used, you should use that same one to identify the pain. And you should be looking at change. You know, did we improve the situation? Did it stay the same or did it get worse? Um, behaviors can also be a target uh, that could be monitored. Remember, uh, many of the studies showed an association with reduction in behaviors with adequate pain control. Um, we also need to monitor for safety or side effects. Um, remember, acetaminophen is in many over-the-counter products. Um, it comes in many cough and cold products. It comes in many analgesic products. Um, and if people are taking some of those, we can actually exceed the daily dose of three to four grams of acetaminophen in a day. So whenever this regimen would be started, um, a complete med review should be done to identify other sources of acetaminophen in the medication regimen um, and get those discontinued so that there's no possible way that a, that a resident could um, get more than three to four grams per day. Remember, acetaminophen is very dangerous in an overdose and it is um, liver toxic. Um, another thing about um, efficacy that I want to mention is remember the study that it took like several weeks for the effect to become significant, the difference between the, the control group and the treatment group. So don't give up too soon. Um, I think at least a two, maybe even a four week trial is a reasonable thing to consider. Um, and uh, certainly don't give up um, before uh, the intervention um, can be shown to be effective. So what happens if the pain is unrelieved? So we use the assessment scale that we use to identify pain and it's showing very limited effect or no effect, or maybe the pain has gotten worse. Uh, what would be our next step? Uh, well, if you look at the evidence, the evidence suggests a very um, a, a step up to a low-dose um, opioid such as oxycodone, or you could extrapolate that to hydrocodone as well. Um, now, these are opioids, um, and as we know, um, opioids come with um, quite a few um, more side effects than acetaminophen, so we do need to be very aware of that. Probably the most troubling side effect, especially in the patient with dementia, would be constipation. 
Um, remember, they may not uh, be able to report symptoms of constipation, so um, it's always a good idea to go ahead and schedule a laxative at that point. Um, we've had some good results using um, Senna plus or minus Docusate on schedule. Again, not PRN. We want to make sure we get that scheduled so that we don't end up with um, constipation or a bowel obstruction uh, from the medication. Other concerns with opioids we need to be aware of. Um, certainly with efficacy, we're going to use the same pain assessment strategy we use to identify the pain. Uh, we're also going to monitor for behaviors. Um, but the actual ADR or safety monitoring becomes extremely important with opioids because we can actually do some harm with these drugs. Uh, we certainly can induce delirium and other cognitive uh, changes, uh, which we need to be very, very aware of. Uh, certainly we can cause sedation. Uh, we can cause dizziness and the associated falls, and as I've already mentioned, constipation. So I think a lot of us um, are really um, a little concerned about going to an opioid uh, for these very reasons. However, with adequate monitoring um, and um, at an appropriate dose reduction if necessary or discontinuation, um, it is a reasonable step. Um, if neuropathic pain is suggested, we have some options there. We have the antidepressants, both the tricyclics and the SNRIs, uh, nortriptyline, uh, duloxetine, which is um, indicated for that. Uh, Milnacipran uh, is also um, available. Um, also, the anticonvulsants, um, primarily gabapentin and pregabalin. Um, again, um, these agents are all um, associated with a fairly high incidence of side effects. Um, some are considered potentially inappropriate in the elderly based on several lists, including the Beers criteria. So we have to be very, very uh, cognizant of that um, and very uh, diligent about monitoring for that. The side effects... Um, of note, certainly they can worsen cognition, they can cause sedation, dizziness falls, we have a lot of drug interactions. Um, nortriptyline um, in particular might be more anticholinergic than some of the others and we know that that can introduce um, all kinds of problems with cognition um, and um, um, exacerbating dementia and delirium. Um, and because of those reasons, if we use these agents, we want to start with a very, very low dose um, and slowly taper them up. Before we go into case one, I just want to mention why I did not include NSAIDs um, on this. Uh, and we'll kind of learn that, about, learn a little bit about NSAIDs as we go through the cases. Um, but NSAIDs actually have some um, indications uh, for pain, obviously. Um, but we feel that in the elderly population, they might actually be more risky than other drugs. Um, and as we work through the cases, I think that will become evident. So the first patient we want to look at is Molly Adams. She's an 86-year-old female who has noticed to be crying out with cares. Uh, she's often tearful when she's alone in a room, and she has exhibited some insomnia and has been starting to wander uh, more at night. She has a past medical history of osteoarthritis, hypertension, chronic kidney disease, and dementia with her MOCA um, score of 18 out of 30. And her social history, she's a retired factory worker. Uh, she did a lot of assembly line work, so repetitive, um, repetitive work. She's been widowed for 10 years and lives with her daughter and son-in-law, who the daughter is the primary caregiver. 
On physical exam, you notice that she ambulates but with a slow, steady gait. She does not use an assistive device. Her medications are ibuprofen, 200 milligrams, TID, uh, Tylenol PM, two tabs she takes at night, lisinopril, 10 milligrams daily, and donepezil, 10 milligrams daily. So for Molly, she's able to under, be able to reliably t uh, use a pain scale. Um, this scale here actually has multiple um, benefits. It has the visual scale of the thermometer, so in, with the color coding of you know blue for on the lower side of the scale and red for more intense pain. Also has the numeric rating scale from the zero to ten. Um, so they could use the numbers, as well as the verbal descriptor scale of um, none, mild, moderate, severe, um, as well as uh, this scale actually shows other words that she may use, like uh, you know, annoying, horrible, agonizing. Um, another thing that's important to um, keep in mind is also instead of words like pain, to think of other words that the um, older person may use to describe pain, such as hurting or ache uh, or other terminology that may they may use to identify their pain. Okay, let's just think about the current pain regimen for this person. Note they're on Tylenol PM. Uh, Tylenol PM um, is a combination drug. It has both diphenhydramine and acetaminophen in it. Um, and it's quite heavily marketed uh, for people to help them sleep. Um, and it, um, according to marketing, will help reduce pain and allow you to fall asleep and it's safe, not habit forming. Well, I wouldn't say it's habit forming, but it certainly is not the safest medication to use. Uh, diphenhydramine um, is actually a highly anticholinergic drug. It's an antihistamine. It has a lot of side effects. It causes all of the classic anticholinergic side effects, including sedation, dry mouth, cognitive impairment. Uh, it has been associated with increased risk of falling. So um, especially for our older adults, uh, we don't consider diphenhydramine a safe medication. So Tylenol PM would probably not be um, one of the better choices. Um, ibuprofen, which is an NSAID, it's a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agent. It's available over the counter. And in acute use, you know, for short-term use, it can be a very effective pain reliever. Um, however, in long-term use, um, especially in older adults, um, it's associated with um, an increase in GI bleeding. Um, and remember, in our patients with dementia, uh, we may not um, be able to identify the early warning signs of GI bleeding uh, until there is a massive uh, GI bleed. So it can be very, very dangerous and life-threatening. Um, we also have concerns about ibuprofen um, with its effect on the kidneys. Um, this patient, remember, has stage three kidney disease um, and ibuprofen and other NSAIDs are certainly going to uh, negatively affect kidney function. So going back to what our evidence suggests, um, a, a reasonable recommendation would be to um, eliminate the Tylenol PM and ibuprofen and go into uh, scheduled acetaminophen 650 to 1,000 milligrams three to four times a day. A trial for at least two and maybe even longer, two weeks or longer. Um, certainly using the baseline assessment that Nicole, Nicole mentioned and using that same assessment to assess pain um, effectiveness of the regimen. We wanna repeat that at regular intervals. 
what if the pain is unrelieved? So, you know, we've, we've done everything with the acetaminophen, we've maximized the dose, we've done our assessment, and we find pain is still not reasonably managed. Um, at this point, um, according to our evidence uh, from our studies, you know, we could consider a low-dose oxycodone, again, presumptively ordering the laxative regimen um, and monitoring bowel function, cognitive, cognitive function, and pain. Um, a non-evidence approach um, might include the use of tramadol, which I haven't really mentioned um, because none of the studies have really looked at tramadol. Um, however, tramadol um, might be considered an alternative to an opioid as well, keeping in mind that tramadol does have uh, serotonergic properties and a person's uh, medication regimen would need to be evaluated for uh, serotonergic drugs um, that might um, cause uh, excessive um, serotonergic uh, function in a patient. So let's look at another case study. Mike Johnson is a 76-year-old male whose chief complaint is that he's been increasingly combative with personal cares. He's been striking out when touched and when he's repositioned, and he repeatedly is yelling, help me, help me. He is, the staff have been unable to console, distract, or reassure Mike. His past medical history includes hypertension, dementia, with a MOCA scale 11 out of 30, so more um, advanced than our first pa patient, Molly. Um, diabetes type 2 for about 20 years, and back pain, as well as his social history is he is a retired farmer and he lives in a nursing home. First physical exam, he uses a wheelchair for ambula ambulation. He has uh, neck and back kyphosis both. He noticed a facial grimace um, with movement. His medications in include amlodipine, 10 milligrams daily, metformin, 500 milligrams, PO twice a day, Lantus insulin, 15 units at HS, and Lortab, 5-325 milligrams, one tab PO every four hours as needed for pain. And on chart review, you notice he's using about two to three tabs per day. So if we apply the pain AD scale um, to Mike, we notice that uh, this scale is pretty um, easy to use based on his symptoms. So for his breathing, um, he is independent of his when he's not talking or making vocalizations. His score is a zero. His breathing is normal. Um, for negative vocalizations, Mike scores pretty higher at two. He has repeated um, trouble calling out. He's yelling calling out, help me, help me, and you notice him to be moaning. Um, for facial expression, he's actually has facial grimacing with movement, so that's a score of two. For body language, he has um, many of these things here um, noted. Uh, it says rigid, fist clenched, knees pulled up, pushing or pulling or pushing away and striking out, and Mike has been um, striking out. Um, for consolability, it says we're unable to console Mike or distract or reassure him. So his total score then on the pain AD is eight, and that's out of 10. So for him, that's a pretty significant number for pain assessment. Okay, so let's talk about Mike's pain regimen here. So he's on the lower tab, and you notice it was PRN or as needed, um, which means that he's getting it two or three times a day, which probably does not um, control his pain. Uh, remember, one of the cardinal rules of managing chronic pain um, is to have scheduled pain medication and not rely on PRN. 
you know, we want to get ahead of the pain. We do not want the pain to get the upper hand. So we're going to have to change his pain regimen. Um, and our recommendation would be, um, since we really don't have a tr any evidence uh, in his record that he's just tried straight old acetaminophen, is let's try that. Um, let's schedule acetaminophen. Probably for him, based on his pain scale, I would probably start right out um, at the maximum dose of 1,000 milligrams three to four times a day um, and give that um, a good two to three week trial um, and see how he does. And again, use the same scale and monitor his pain. Now you might say, um, can we just switch directly from Lortab or hydrocodone, which is an opioid, uh, to Tylenol? Um, probably with you know two or three tablets a day, he's probably not going to go into you know a fairly uh, difficult withdrawal. Um, however, um, in older adults, I always feel it's better to be safe when we're tapering medications or discontinuing medications that they've been on a while. So I would probably feel more comfortable. Um, you know, giving him one Lortab a day for a few days um, while you initiate Tylenol, remembering that Lortab has Tylenol in it. So probably initiate the Tylenol or acetaminophen at 1,000 milligrams twice a day uh, while you give one Lortab at bedtime. And then on day four, um, after three days of that, you could just go ahead and escalate to the acetaminophen 1,000 milligrams three times a day. Um, you could add a fourth dose um, as needed or scheduled. Um, but, mon but continue this for at least two weeks um, and monitor using the same scale. So it's important to remember that the pain AD monitors changes in the total score over time and in response to the treatment to determine if it's successful. An increased score suggests an increase in pain and a lower score suggests a decrease in pain. So on Mike's previous assessment, we found that his score was eight. So let's say after using the Tylenol and tapering down the Lortab that he now has vocalizations of just occasional moaning with movement. Uh, his facial expression is a flat effect. His body language is occasionally tense with movement and he is fidgety and he can be reassured by voice and touch. And how would you score his pain AD now? So I would actually score him still um, for breathing at a zero, still as normal breathing. His uh, vocal negative vocalization, I would put as a one, that he does occasionally uh, moan or groan. Uh, and then for facial expression, I would say one. It's at a flat affect. He's not exactly smiling, so I wouldn't give him the zero. I'd give him a one. Um, for his body language, uh, I would give him a one because he still tends to be fidgety. And then for his consolability, he is able to be reassured or distracted. Um, so that I would give them a one there. So now his new uh, pain uh, score would be a four on the on reassessment, which is an improvement from the eight that he was on before our intervention. Um, and remember that the best practice is to continue to use the same scale routinely and to look at uh, the patient both with rest and at, during movement. Um, so based on the last assessment, it looks like Mike's pain is, is relieved uh, and we have improved his pain control with the acetaminophen. Uh, what, however, if it was not? Uh, what if his score was still 8 or worse or, or certainly not significantly better? Um, we have a couple options here. Uh, remember, Mike has uh, type 2 diabetes and he's had it for quite, a, quite some time, about 20 years. Uh, so we could consider 
um, an agent for neuropathic pain, um, or we could consider a low-dose opioid. And I think you could make a case for either one of those. Um, however, um, something that would maybe discourage the opioid is even though his previous order for hydrocodone or Lortab was PRN, it didn't appear like it was terribly effective for him. Um, that is our presentation. Uh, we would really like to thank you for your attention. Uh, we hope that this has been helpful and it helps you do better care for our patients uh, with dementia and unmet needs of pain. Thank you very much.